Let's look at other things. Let's look at bottom-up. Okay, what happens? Now, this happens without us. Okay, this happens without government. This happens despite planning. Okay, what do they do? They evolve simple rules. Okay, the classic system. Okay, in any emergent system, you see these. You see this uh, evolution of the formation of simple rules or hierarchies, which are spontaneous. You see emergent solutions, which are adaptive. You hear this all before. Organized. Uh, self-organized, which is collaborative, that adds up to the organized complexity that Jane Jacobs talks about. So they have ideas, tools, and tactics, and they call it the way, and it's an open way. It changes all the time. It's learned by, by adaptation. It changes. It's evolutionary. And you put the two together, and you have the Maginot line between the two of them. So this question of how do we ever liberate the power of local when the instruments at the top don't allow us to do it? They just, we will never be allowed to do it. So the only way of dealing with those 10,000 homes and backyards is to enforce, okay? Rather than to say, actually, these guys are solving a housing problem in London. Think about it. What's wrong with it? It's basic human dynamics solving, in, in one particular place, 25% of London's annual housing supply. That's without counting the other boroughs. That's what they're doing. And that's informal settlements in progress. And in 20, 30 years' time, there'll be proper places. And uh, we'll have solved a housing problem. So the question about what does top-down need to be what is it, how does it need to change? So if you look at those two, the reality of complex rules never meet simple rules. The deterministic place-making models that we've got don't meet the, um, the adaptive emergent solutions. And the restrictive command and control never meets self-organized, which is collaborative. It can't possibly. Um, and that's what happens. You know, I can't believe we still have to protest this crap. Okay? So that's what happens. You know, people react to it. You know. And we kind of either accept it and we kind of move on, or we just ignore it. There's two things we do. So what does top-down have to do? So we've been spending a bit more time on this. So if top-down is really talking about facilitating bottom-up, it has to move to much more open ways of doing it. So it needs to create what we call public protocols. In other words, ways, protocols, ways. And as you, protocol means it's a code, it's a way, it's a standard, it's a way of allowing things to happen. It's permissive, okay, which is generative in this particular. It generates the simple rules. It must move to condition making. So that thing I mentioned about you must put the preconditions in for complexity. You can't design for complexity, but you can put the preconditions in. And leadership must be much more facilitative, you know, much more enabling. And that leads to what we call massive small. So these three things, these three headings, public protocols, enabling conditions, uh, sorry, the, the viability conditions and the enabling leadership are really the three chapters of how we take the book forward. And they're the ones we have to develop ideas and tools and tactics for. So look at the public protocols. Three of them, three broad areas. One is about openness, okay? One is about responsiveness. You know, we, our Bible is responsive environment, isn't it? Uh, collaborative, okay? There are three things that you can write protocols around. And protocols are like operating principles that inform how simple rules are, are made. So it's a permissive way of allowing, things, allowing people to do things. Um, if you look at the government's um, open standard principles, Rick, you know about this. I know you mentioned something recently. The government publishes um, what's called open standards for IT provision and other types of services, okay? And this is what it says, okay? And it says all things that we want in a planning system, okay? So how do you embody diverse perspectives? How do you encourage market? How do you do all this sort of thing? So in other words, one part of government is open. So why isn't planning open? It's the only thing that's closed. It's a closed system. So we have an open system in one part of government. They're not, they're not, they're not scared of allowing this to be open, okay? And the other is becoming more and restrictive, more and more policies written, more and more band-aids put on the elephant in the room. 
So question, when we talk about openness, this is what openness means in the world of IT. Why can't it be the same in the world of planning? If you look at open planning system or open, open building concepts like John Habraken, that gave rise to that. That's the reason the Dutch are building housing 40% cheaper than us, is because of the open building concepts they use. Okay, they have a way of doing things. It's their way. They build off a platform, and that's what it is. Take it or leave it. And that's what John Habraken said. You know, the idea that a built environment is the product of an ongoing, never-ending des never design process, which the environment transformed part by part. So design is integral to this process. It's not separate. Okay? It's integral. It's not just a bolt-on. It's not something that the government decides to write out of the system every couple of years. And the stuff they're doing in Berlin. We were in Berlin recently. Fantastic projects. The townhouse projects here done by Baugruppen. The mayor's only policy is, I think, what is the word, Andrew? He calls it demediation or something. Or, uh, it's, it's okay, basically it's getting rid of the middleman. Okay? So he deals directly with Baugruppen. They're building housing 40 plus 25% cheaper because of the way they're building it. Building it quickly, they get the rates in quickly, and they're building good stuff. Building fantastic stuff. They just changed the game plan. They just changed the mindset. And a Berlin, a Berlin mayor said, I don't want to talk to developers. I don't want to talk to the house builders. I want to talk to people who have an interest in my town. And that's what they do. And they're building thousands of these things. Thousands. Go to Berlin. Go and see what they're doing. Okay, open environment protocols. There's a whole lot there. Um, I don't want to read all of them. But So one of the key protocols is use open standards to build the invisible chassis. In other words, that's the thing that sits underneath. The basic family car has the invisible chassis. That's the reason why the basic family car has moved on. There's a standard element underneath it. We need that same element underneath housing. Responsive, structure the ordinary and the extraordinary will follow. That's what John Habraken said, structure the ordinary. Okay, get the ordinary right. Don't worry about wow. Wow will come in the framework of ordinary. Extraordinary is only extraordinary if you have good ordinary. And uh, the other thing, the old adage, you know, we constantly been laboring on the mis misapprehension about some of these things. What is context? Context is a modifier, not a determinant. I often said when someone overlaid a plan on San Francisco, they never visited the site. Okay? It was dropped on, and the site kicked back. And that's why San Francisco is so fantastic. It's because of that. So the context modified the plan. It didn't determine the plan. Density is an outcome, not a determinant. Density isn't something we plan for. It's a consequence of a whole lot of other things happening. And why are we worried about unpredictability? It's an opportunity. That's where innovation comes from in that world of unpredictability. Yet we obsess with certainty. So we, do this, so we prevent innovation because of that. And the last one is around collaboration. The one I put here is build a common language for cross-sector working. So I think we've heard quite often about the whole question of silo working. How do we build, that, how do we build a common language for us to talk together? We all come, from, come to the system with completely different values. How do we build the story? Right, just focusing on quickly on um, the conditions. There are five conditions. Each of these are a lecture. Okay? Welcome for me to talk for another five hours on it. I probably can. But um, each of the things are things we have to do. They're the, they're the condition making things we have to put in place. And if we avoid, if we don't put one of them in, we can put the Olympic Village in with a fantastic network, but if we don't put the catalysts in, it'll die. Okay? If we don't put the generators in, it'll die. So we need all five of these things. And all of them are framed by these simple rules. And I'm just going to focus on two of them. Um, before I do that, <clears throat> just to show that these things are not all about the role of government, okay, those condition-making things. Clearly the role of government is in networks, because they can only operate at that scale, of the, the bigger scale of putting things in, at the scale of the generators, at the fields, the defaults, the catalysts. And I'll talk about some of these in a bit more. But the people take over, 
Okay, when it comes to the, the top end, increasingly, the government can do very little about building social capital at the local level. It is a people-driven thing. You need that at the local level. So we need this interplay between government and people all the time. That's that thing about the, the importance. We don't expect the government to do anything. Oh, we'll take it. We'll do it. That should be part of that sort of game plan. So look at network. The key thing about network is about regularity and order. Okay? The motherboard. The motherboard onto which we can put things. Okay? It's as simple as that. And the more regular we can make it, the more chance we have of a place transforming. And we always knew this. Okay? When they put a Roman plan in or a Greek plan in or they put in the King Philip's plan of, um, uh, for the law of the Indies in, in South America, they're all about creating regular things that you dropped onto places or the Victorian plans that happened in new settlements that, throughout the world. An order was put in place against which response happened. This wasn't about grand design. Okay? It wasn't about grand axes and city beautiful. This was just about order. Okay? Just put the motherboard down. And what you realize, it doesn't matter what you put down, as long as it's regular and ordered, it'll work. That's the other thing, because you'll find endless variations of this. There's no magic in it. And most of this wasn't done by urban designers. Probably an engineer laid this out, or a surveyor, or someone different. And as a result, that's what New York is. New York is the motherboard that has created that response. It's created the, the framework onto which this response can happen. So if you look at Park Avenue years ago, Park Avenue didn't start like it is today. Okay? But the preconditions for Park Avenue were put in place to enable it to start like this and become that. Okay? So to me, that's evolution. This place has transitioned from being someone laying out a simple grid with a diagonal and listening to this place against which a response happened. To move slightly, okay, is it easier to prevent a slum than to fix one? And um, I'll just put some figures forward. If all we did was to lay out a grid. If all we did, the factor would be something like 0.6. In other words, it would probably be the land value to do it. Okay? If we service that site, the factor would go up to 1.6. If we don't do it, the factor goes up to 4.4. Most informal settlements in Africa at the moment fall in that last category because they're not ordered. Okay? And therefore, they're very difficult to get services to run in the places. You create riots every time you come in to, to work in these places. As a result, the figure goes up. If you allow them to happen on difficult bits of land, the figure goes up to 12.4. So government carries the can eventually. Okay. So why do we see informal settlements as a threat? Okay, they're an opportunity. Someone else is doing your work for you. Those guys doing beds and sheds are solving a housing problem. You know, they're just informal cities and cities in progress. So the question here is if we just get those preconditions, those first conditions right, we set place on we set up we set and train a, um, a chain of events that enable this place to transition from being informal to formal over a period of time. And I'll show you exactly what I mean. Vallejo Salvador in Lima laid out as an informal grid. Okay, sorry, laid out as a formal grid, but an informal settlement. No service put in from day one. Okay, it started like that. Um, as it emerged, services were put in, okay, because there was a regular grid in place, okay, there was a system around refuse collection and supplying water to the place until this happened. By the time they came to do this, they had workers adjacent, so they were able to sort of subcontract local people to do this work. And this place emerged into that within 10 years, and within my lifetime, it's transitioned from its first state to a normal piece of town. It's probably got a couple more years to go, but the parks are in, the infrastructure's in, it's a normal functioning piece of town. But it started just with a simple plan. Okay, it just started with a simple ordering plan. And through that process it evolved. So the question is, if we just start with that, if we just set in place the first preconditions of networks, we give the chance, that, and, it's, and those networks are open and adaptive, we give them the best possible shot of surviving. I'll flip this quickly.
Um, default. Default is typology for us, for us architects and, and planners. Basically, it's the standard thing we do. It's the way we kind of learned. It's the normative. It's the convention, whatever you want to call it. Okay, it's things that happen on a regular basis. It's a thing we probably all live in. We live in normative kind of places, and they evolve over time, and uh, there's rules in there. We never know where the rules came from, uh, but they are. They're there. And the London Building Acts, building acts that determined Georgian London were only four pages long, okay, and they created uh, an order, which was Georgian London. And they enabled a whole set of other things to happen, inner growth to happen, you know, change to happen over time. And they also enable scalability. Okay? So something could transition from that to that, from the kucha to the puka okay? in India, the transitioning thing. And that's what the system allows. The system allows this to happen. Okay? In most parts of Africa, this transition doesn't happen. It freezes because the initial conditions are not in place to, to make it happen. Other places try a lot harder. This is the elemental project you probably would have seen quite often. It seems a hell of a long way to go to achieve that. Okay? So it's, it's about, in this instance, a core house that you can then infill. So they're building double party walls and then actually for the small amount of effort and in infilling, to me it doesn't make that much sense. But I know architects love it, so I'll look at it. Okay? Let's think about something else. If you had to just put in an issue, this is just an example of what we're talking about. If you had to just put in the preconditions of a large site with a party wall, if you just had to do this in a, in a typical situation, and it could be built mass housing, whatever you want to call it, mass construction, whatever way of doing it, they're quite simple things to do. These places could then achieve early occupation. Okay? People could build their shacks there, but it's an ordered shack, it's an ordered structure. Okay? Wall to lean up against, they prevent the fire spread and all that sort of stuff, that's a big problem in, in, in towns and cities. And this place, urbanity emerges over time as it formalizes, and then it becomes a real place. Okay? So just through that first action, you're setting a train, a, chain of motion, a chain of actions which you have no control over, but something will emerge. So that's the challenge when we have to do more with less. What do we tell government? Do we go and tell them you need a great big shiny master plan with a new big flagship building, or you have to build a lot of those shiny things that we saw a bit earlier to solve the problem, or you just have to put in those key things? What is the, most, the lowest possible common denominator you can put in place to foster that change? You can evolve typologies for that system as well as you want. Okay, so it can be formal and informal. The work we did on the Popular Home Initiative with five London boroughs looked at this, this whole issue. And what we said is, like MP3 is the industry standard for music, we need the equivalent for building. We need the PH3, Popular Home Standard 3 for building. Okay, that's that idea of Habrakan's open, open building concept. And once we do that, we can do all the other things that these other guys are doing, and doing incredibly well. And we can do it with lots of, lots of people doing it, okay? lots of different interventions. It doesn't require a single hand to build an entire project. There's lots of things that can happen. Through that process, we looked at different routes. Okay? You can either follow the conventional route, which is to look through reams and reams of guidance, to come up with a unit of delivery, which is a site, do another master plan, come up with a single outcome. Or you can look at parameter books, uh, different versions of doing that based on parameter plans where you can create multiple outcomes. Why are we worried about housing? Housing used to be easy for us to do. It's almost impossible. It takes you two, year to, two years to get a planning consent on houses run about 20, 20. Above that is longer than two years at the moment. So the question is, how do we deal with the question of, of housing? How do we liberate housing from the, from the system? And how do we also introduce this concept of urban diversity? Okay? Not the single hand, the reams and reams of 400 houses on the outskirts of your town. Okay? And you know what they're going to look like. Okay? How do you say, 
Actually, I wouldn't mind if lots of these things were happened which are diverse and different and they were crafted. And this particular instance, making the modern street in Dublin, I think, John, you'd know about this one, is about how you can, with simple rules, develop the idea of the modern townhouse. Okay, you could create great design. These were all the best architects in Dublin who all collaborated on the scheme. But also, they were basic townhouses built of exactly the same chassis. That's all they were. The Berliners are doing as well through the concept of self-made city, as I mentioned a bit earlier. Right, let me get to the last one, uh, enabling leadership. Um, D. Hock, who you heard a bit earlier, talks about this idea of chaotic. At one end, you have chaos means destructive, I think, Andrew, it's destructive despair. So you've got chaos at one end, you've got order at one end. If we get too ordered, we get the rigidity. So that's, we're operating in that control rigidity mode at the moment. And the real sweet spot, as he says, of generative emergence is in that world between chaos and, and order. Okay? That's the point at which real creativity starts happening, okay? that point. And how you manage that interplay between the two is a management technique. Okay? They're using this in business. Okay? This is a business technique that's used in some of the top companies at the moment. Why aren't we using it in planning? Are we scared of it? Are we scared of this thing? You know, I think we are. So these guys have written some good books, and we're going to look at this and use this as trying try to build this idea of how we, how we look at civic leaders and how we arm civic leaders with that ability to be brave, okay? not to follow policy EN1 or policy H, H45, whatever it is, every time they open their mouth, how they think about how they enable um, things to happen. Smart cities sound all right. What about smart citizens? You know the debate we've had all the time, you know, this fear. There's some bright kid sitting in Imperial College who's going to press a button one day and he's going to have a model that'll tell us exactly what our city should look like, okay? Some climate change model or energy model, like our traffic models control cities for ages. What's wrong with citizens? How do we make smart citizens? Smart cities are fine, okay? How do we liberate the citizens to make these decisions as well? Um, Barcelona is doing it. You'd know about this one, Rick. Um, smart citizen networks, that's what technology's given us. We're sitting here tonight and there's probably people tweeting. There's probably people... You know, out there telling other people. And that's what the ability of social media has given us. It's this ability to move from a situation which is this, which is a 10-year predict, predict and plan model. In other words, come back in five years' time when we're ready to do our plan and we'll change it, to a system which is that, one year, regular continuous feedback. And complex systems require this way of, of doing it. And that's what we have the technology to do this now. This is an easy thing for us to do. Once we recognize that we can do it, that's the first point. But the ability to do it is, is quite an easy one. So what we are talking about at the end of the day is the graphic equalizer. Okay? That the way we should think of cities is that we're sitting just making small adjustments all the time. Okay? Small adjustments making this big difference. Rather than this wholesale approach that we've done all the time, let's flatten it, let's start again. How do we just tweak? How do we tune? Okay? How do we get in touch with what we're doing? And I don't think we're in touch with what we're doing all the time. We go back to our computers or our screens or our drawing boards and we draw things. Okay? We don't really understand how we're transforming. Okay? And then you preside over those two curves going further and further away from you. Um, I've got to come back to the professionals because we're all here as professionals. And we all want to do the right thing. Uh, and this is what this says. You know, we all let the spirit ignite a fire in you to leave this world in a better place than when you found it. And I don't believe that we're doing it. Okay? I don't believe if you go to a planner in Aylesbury, my local town, who are working on the book called How to Kill Your Town in Ten Steps, okay, and they've got to step nine at the moment, that they really believe they're making the world a better place. Okay? Um, and that's, that requires mindsets, particularly younger people. I think Rob and I are too old you know, 
But I think younger people to say, well, how do we do this? How do we change the game plan here? So what we said is, what happens if we just change the ethics of how we did things? So this is the Hippocratic Oath written for planners and urban professionals, in fact. So what we did is everything that's in green would have said something medical before. Okay? And I think it just changes the, way, changes the way we think when we do something. Like a doctor is not committed to the National Health Service, he's committed to the patient, keeping that person alive. And I think that's what we're missing in what we do, is we understand who we're working for. Our patient is the city, or the neighborhood, or the town. Okay, that's who we're working for. We've got to keep that alive. And I think that's what we're missing. So, we need you, all right? Imperious looking guy, I know, Rob. But um, we need you to help us, okay? So the idea is we deliberately built a platform that does a couple of things. We're asking you to help us do this, spread the word, become a benefactor, put your hands in your pockets. Okay, we need a bit of cash. I've got a whole lot of pamphlets here, someone wants to put in. We don't care how small it is, okay? We're going to lots of small, that's massive small at work. We're looking to crowdfund the accelerator, which we'll launch in June of this year, Mike, I think, June or July, we said, okay? Uh, we're inviting you to make a submission, so if there's any idea, even if it's a small idea, even if it's 10 words, let us know, okay? That small 10 words can evolve into something big, so we, we'd like that to happen. Become an early adopter, okay? In other words, buy into the program uh, if you can, and help us moderate the network. We've got a good network going, there's some good conversations going. We'll be publishing all the submissions out on the, on the, on the LinkedIn group. And um, if you want to read any more about it, um, massasmall.com, Pendium. Okay. Thank you very much.